Sorry, microphones don't work when they're in your pocket, do they? Um, very strange, though. Let's pray as you're all standing. Let's pray, and then I'll put the microphone on while you sit down. Father God, we thank you for uh, the words uh, that we've read today from Job. Lord, once again, we thank you for this uh, difficult and mysterious book, and yet you speak to us so clearly through it. Lord, we praise you that by your Holy Spirit you may speak to our hearts and may change us through all parts of your word. In the name of Christ, amen. Thanks very much to uh, Alison for those prayers. I thought she did that so well that I might just pack up and go home, actually. Um, it was uh, excellent. Uh, we're in Job, and we're going to be around about the chapters uh, 29 to 31. There's going to be a fair bit of page flicking today. Uh, chapter 29 is page 530. And just to sort of recap where we are in the book of Job, um, I don't know if you remember, quite a few weeks back now, we had uh, chapter 3 and Job cursing the day of his birth because of everything that had happened uh, to him. And then uh, we had the toing and froing, didn't we, between uh, Job's uh, comforters, as they're called, or Job's friends, and uh, Job himself as he responded to them. Uh, lots of toing and froing, and as we heard from Diana last week, uh, not a lot of listening on the part of the friends, uh, and quite a lot of jumping to conclusions uh, and speaking uh, without very much love. And all the time, of course, we know that Job was suffering this acute pain that believers feel uh, when they suffer or see other people suffering. In chapter 28, uh, which comes after all these different speeches, there's a little pause in the narrative as Job considers the true nature of wisdom. And he kind of rejects all the foregone conclusions and the faulty theology of his friends. And he reflects on just how some people are always constantly seeking wisdom. As, uh, as you're, if you look there, chapter 8, 28, you're, you'll see he talks about how people mine for gold or silver and other precious minerals. And they seek with all their mights, and yet wisdom for wisdom's sake cannot be found. Wisdom is found in the love and reverence of God and the keeping of his moral laws. So it concludes in uh, verse 28, or chapter 28. Job says, And God said to man, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. You see, that, my friends, is where Job is at. That's Job's starting point, his middle point, his end point. That's what he's trying to live by throughout his whole life. The wisdom of God, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. And we'll find that out as we look at these chapters, uh, 29 to 31. Because what we have here is Job's final uh, speech of defense. And it's a real masterpiece. So in chapter 29, uh, Job looks back and remembers the time before all these disastrous things happened to him. In chapter 30, he laments about how he's being treated now by all the people around him. And in chapter 31, the question is uh, to Job, are you guilty as charged? It's like a magistrate's court. 
for confidence that he has not sinned, Job puts his hands on the Bible and he swears before judge and jury an oath of innocence. He says, not guilty, my Lord. And yet, as we start looking at these passages, we still find, and we have to remember this, that Job is still sat on his little rubbish tip outside of the town, stripped away uh, all his, his, his family and his friends and his wealth. has all been stripped away from him. He's worn down, he's exhausted, he's sitting on his little rubbish tip and covered in infected sores. And I want to... And I wonder, as he sits there, what does he dream of? You see, in, in uh, 1908, Ernest Shackleton uh, led uh, his own expedition, the second one he'd been on, uh, to the South Pole. And he and his companions set off with four ponies to help carry the load. And weeks later, their ponies had died, their rations were running out, uh, and they were exhausted. They got pretty close to the South Pole, closer than anybody else had got there before. But in the end, they had to turn back to base. Their goal was not accomplished, even though they got closer than others. They had trekked for 127 days. And on the return journey, Shackleton records in his diary that the time was spent talking about food. They talked about elaborate feasts, gourmet delights, sumptuous menus, everything they could think about about food. They staggered along, suffering from dysentery and all sorts of other nasty things, uh, not knowing whether they would survive this journey, and yet all they could talk about was food. They filled their thoughts with eating. As we look down at chapter 29, what do you think Job remembers most fondly from his former times? Will it be food, like Shackleton and his friends? Uh, Will it be his sons or his daughters? or his house, or his farm, his livestock, or the standing that he had in the community? What do you think it might be? Well, let's look at verse 1 of chapter 29. So Job continues. He says, How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me. In other words, and this is my first point, Job valued most his relationship with God above all other things. You see, in his relationship with God, he discovered true goods. His path, in verse 6, was drenched with cream. The rocks poured out streams of olive oil. And no doubt his wife's other name was Nigella. (laughs) See, what Job looks back on with most fondness is not his house, his fields, his livestock, not even his seven sons or his three daughters. It is his walk with God which he remembers, his close, intimate relationship with God which made him feel right with God. And if I were to ask many of you today, What do you most value in this world? Well, I know that many of you would hesitate for a little while, reflect perhaps for a moment, but you could honestly say that the thing most important to you in your life is actually your relationship with God, knowing that you are right with God. So I know that so many of you here, and this is what I love about this church, you live for God. And when you go out from here today, you'll be looking for ways to serve him during the week. 
You'll be in constant prayer. You'll be examining yourselves and laying down before God anything that you think uh, you've let them down over. God is at the centre of your lives. He's at the hub of your wheel, if you like. And from him you find your strength to juggle work and family and relationships and all the other things that you hold dear. But God is at the centre of it all. For others, God may be just like some of those other things you juggle. Just another multicoloured ball moving around the circle. So it's a useful reminder here by Job to reflect on what Job most valued. Out of all the things he had lost, he most valued that feeling of being right with God. But Job's religion was never just uh, personal or private. And so secondly, the blessing which he received from his relationship with God was poured out to all those around him. Perhaps you know the feeling. You meet someone uh, or a group of people and you like what you see. And you can't help get drawn into their way of life and way of doing things a little bit. It happened to me recently. I met Colin Crouch. Not for the first time. Uh, but over a cup of coffee and a broken computer in his kitchen, uh, uh, he told me about how he'd started running just a few years ago. And I thought to myself, well, if he started running at his age... I can do that too. And I have. I've been running a little bit. I've been running since Christmas after talking to Colin. I wonder what Job saw in God. Well, I think he saw the goodness and the mercy and the compassion and the justice. And his soul was so attracted by all that goodness that he was drawn deeper and deeper into this relationship with God. And as he was drawn deeper into this extraordinary relationship, he could not help but pour out these blessings to people around him. So in verses 7 to 17, and again in verses 21 to 25, he remembers the good he was able to do to others. You see, for Job was not just a man who happened to be rich and powerful. He knew that he'd been made in the image of God. He was like a well-polished mirror. He reflected the character of God in his life. For just as God is gracious and cares for the needy and suffering, so Job expressed that care, delivering the poor who cried for help and the fatherless in their need, verse 12, rescuing those at the point of death and the widow in her pain, verse 13, acting as the eyes of the blind and feet to the lame, verse 15, a father to the needy, verse 16, and a righteous judge giving justice to the oppressed, verse 17. It's not surprising then, in those days, he was treated with some uh, great respect and honour. For here is a man living as a man ought to live. You could almost say he was like an ideal ruler. Perhaps even the saviour of many. Perhaps even he foreshadowed somebody else who walked this world in perfect relationship with his father. Perfectly representing the love and faithfulness of his father among men and women causing the widow's heart to sing with joy when her dead son was raised, giving eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. But Job, Job, he wasn't without options. If you just turn over the page to chapter 31, you can see all the things that he could have done. He lists them here for us. You see, he could have let his eyes wander to look lustfully at a girl, verse 1. And that's where it begins, isn't it? The eyes wander. And he could have let that dwell in his heart, verse 5, and allowed his feet to steer him in the wrong direction, verse 6. 
leading him to his neighbor's door, verse 9, where he could have slept with another man's wife. Or in the area of work, he could have defrauded his servants and maltreated them, verse 13. But he knew God supports the underdog. He could have looked at the desperate social need of the day and kept his bread for himself and made sure that only he had the finest clothes, verse 16 to 20. But God loves the poor, cold, and hungry. In the public sphere, he could have used his influence in court to feather his own nest, verse 21. As a man of wealth, he could have put his trust in his gold, verse 24. He could have put his faith in horoscopes and the constellations of the zodiac, as many of his pagan neighbors would have done. Verse 25, the sun and the moon. Forgetting that there was only one God. Such things, the Bible tells us, uh, bring uh, court disaster with God. He could have laughed at his enemy's misfortune, verse 29. He could have been a mean host, holding back his provisions and ensuring that strangers slept on the streets, verses 31 to 32. I mean, what did they have to do with him? On top of all that, he could have concealed his sins, as other men did. He could have hidden his guilt. If he kept silent and kept his head down, who would have known, verse 34? You see, there's all manner of things that Job could have done, just as there's all manner of things that we could do. But Job is able to protest his innocence. He did none of those things. In short, Job had been captured by a far better vision and all those tawdry options of chapter 31. Because Job had been captured by a vision of God, who is kind and compassionate and cares deeply for his people. And Job wanted to be like that. He wanted to reflect that kind of love to the people around him. He didn't need to prove himself to God by keeping all the rules and the laws. He didn't try to prove himself to other people, desperately seeking their respect and approval, although he did actually gain that along the way. He didn't try to prove to himself, wanted to feel good about himself. No, his goodness simply flowed from the fact that he was already in a wonderful relationship with God. If you like, he already felt justified. He had been justified by faith. He didn't have to win approval. And I wonder, I wonder, whether all of us have been captured by that same vision. You see, how can you deal with the jealousy towards your, your, your brother or your sister or your friend who has more money than you, or better health than you? Well, it begins with knowing that God is sufficient for all your needs. Next time you think about inviting somebody out to lunch, but then you think, well, actually, I'm a bit tired and I'm not sure there's enough meat on the joints. Will you remember God's goodness to you? If you're struggling with pornography, or perhaps you are lurking at the neighbor's door, will you remember it is God who satisfies? You see, Job didn't need to prove himself to God, or to other people, or or even to himself, because he already knew that he was right with God. He had experiences God's goodness and grace, And it's that which kept him from sexual temptation. It's that that made him a good employer, a charity worker, and a great host. Everyone had eaten at his table. And Job, he thought that would be the end of the story. Chapter 29, verse 14 says, um, 
I put on righteousness as my clothing, justice was my robe and my turban. Verse 18 says, I thought, I should die in my own house. My, na- my days as numerous as the, gran- the grains of sand. My roots will reach the water and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will remain fresh in me, the bow ever new in my hands. In other words, I'll walk in God's blessing all the days of my life and I'll continue to bless others right to the end until I die of old age in my, in my own lovely home. And if this was a traditional happy story, then we would all expect an ending to be like that, wouldn't we? We'd all expect the ending to be like that in the well-run world. So again, we have to remind ourselves that Job is still sitting on his rubbish tip, covered in his scratchy sores. And chapter 30 describes the contempt with which Job is treated by even the worst sections of society. They laugh at him, verse 1. Men younger than he is, whose fathers he has disdained, who wouldn't even be good enough to lie down with the sheepdogs in his fields, they're laughing at him. Job is alone. He's despised and rejected by people, verse 11 to 15. He's miserable beyond belief, 16 and 18 of chapter 30. And he begins up thinking, it is God. It's God who's thrown me into this mire, verse 19. Now, we know different from that because we've read the prologue to the book, which Job hasn't read. We know that God actually hasn't laid a hand on him. The only hand that has been laid on Job is the hand of Satan. Acting with God's permission, yes, but it's nevertheless the hand of Satan. But from Job's perspective, God has betrayed him. He cries out to God in verse 20, and God doesn't answer. He stands up, but God merely looks at him. And that's why the pain of his current suffering is all the more acute, because he no longer feels the full force of God's love and acceptance and grace. And that's why, and this is my third point, Job longs, he longs to be justified by God. You see, in chapter 31, turn over to that, verses 35 to 37, we come into the climax of the passage here. It's as though Job here, the mortal man, he throws down the gauntlet to his creator and he says, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. You see, if he has anything against me at all, then let him put it before this court. You see, Job knows that he's an innocent man. He's a righteous man, a forgiven believer. He knows that the accusations against him will prove nothing. There's no case to answer. Such an indictment, if it was ever written, would just be a joke. He'd be proud to uh, wear it on his lapel or on a cra- like a, uh, a crown on his head for all to see, for all to read. Job, he said, could give an account of every step in his life. There'd be no case to answer. With all the confidence of a priest, he is able to approach his gods. It's no light thing, this approaching God. You see, he knows that God has seen everything he's done in his life. Four times in chapter 31, in verses 8, 10, 22, and 40, he even suggests imaginative and uh, creative ways of uh, bringing punishment upon himself if he's done any of these terrible things. He knows that he is accountable for all of his actions. actions. And yet Job also knows that he's innocent. And what matters most to him at the end of the day is being justified by God. He longs to enjoy that close, intimate walk with God that he once knew. And you see, that's what, all matter, that's what matters to all of us at the end of the day. We may be rich in this life 
and have fine houses and fine cars and six children who all go to university and get wonderful degrees. Or we might be poor and have no children and not able to find a Christian uh, husband or wife even. But what matters at the end of the day is whether we are justified before God's. And in Job's case, we already know the verdict. Not because of what Job has said in these chapters. We don't have to take it from Job's lips. We can take it from God's own lips in chapter 1 and verse 8, where the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. You see that? That's chapter 38 again, isn't it? Sorry, 28, verse 28. And we want to believe, we want to believe, as we follow this story, that Job will have a happy ending, that he will be publicly justified by God. But for now, with Job, we just have to uh, doubt whether God is really going to back up his words and behave like God. You see, the questions that Job has is, is God really good? Is God really kind? Does he really have compassion on his people? You see, the trial here is being turned on its head. We're no longer in the local magistrate's courts. We're at the Hague. And God is in the dock. He is guilty. Is he guilty for not only maltreating Job and for the genocide of his family, but is he guilty of not living up to the dignity of his own office? Will God be God at the end of the day? Well, we have to wait several weeks now for the answer. But for us, here and now, can we be so sure of our innocence? Have we lived up to the standards of Job's life, let alone what God requires of us? You see, if we're honest, we have to reflect that there are many areas in our life where we could have done better. You see, we, I think, remain in the dock, still accountable for our many sins. But there is an answer, isn't there? We also can approach God with the confidence of a prince if we only just put our trust and our faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Martin Luther wrote this, and this is where I'm ending. Martin Luther. I do not come because my soul is free from sin and pure and whole and worthy of your grace. I do not speak to you because I've ever justly kept your laws and dare to meet your face. I know that sin and guilt combine to reign over every thought of mine and turn from good to ill. I know that when I try to be upright and just and true to you, I'm a sinner still. I know that often when I strive to keep a spark of love for you alive, the powers within leap up in unsubmissive might and numb my sense of right and pull me back to sin. I know that although I spend my life in doing goods, I could never atone for all I've done. But though my sins are black as night, I dare to come before your sight because I trust your Son. In him alone my trust I place to come boldly to your throne of grace and there commune with thee. Salvation sure, O Lord, is mine and all unworthy I am thine for Jesus died for me. Let us pray.
Lord, all of us, like Job, long to be justified before you, long to be seen as righteous, and yet we know what we're like. And so, Lord, with Luther, we say, in Christ alone, my trust I place, to come boldly to your throne of grace and there commune with thee. Salvation sure, O Lord, is mine, and all unworthy I am thine, for Jesus died for me. Amen.